This is The Secret Life of Writers, a new interview series with some of the world's most interesting and visionary writers and creative icons. My name is Gemma Birrell, and these rambling conversations are with people I personally find fascinating and whose work I love. We'll chat about how they do what they do and somehow manage to balance life and art. And we'll also hear about what they're working on now. Today I'm speaking with Inua Ellums. Inua is a creative polymath, and he plays with language across forms in the most electric and visceral way. He's a poet, playwright, a creator of community, graphic artist and designer, and he's moved and entertained audiences around the world, on stages from Queen Elizabeth Hall and the Sydney Opera House to the Glastonbury Festival. Inua is an ambassador for the Ministry of Stories, a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and has published various books of poetry and plays. He is prolific. His most recent book is The Half-God of Rainfall, that The Guardian described as playful and epic, a story of feuding gods and journeys to the edge of the universe. As with his poetry, his plays have been critically acclaimed. The Barbershop Chronicles, for example, sold out two runs at the National Theatre and was recently one of the special selection of works live-streamed during the pandemic. Inu is also the founder of Midnight Run, a nocturnal urban excursion as he's described it, and he runs a rap party for poets to read work inspired by hip-hop culture. Inua, hello. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. Can you describe where you are speaking to us from? Um, I'm speaking to you from my flat in South London, in Deptford, um, and I've lived here for about two years. It's a two-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment. Um, I have a balcony and I have um, two neighbours either side of me. One of them just got a dog called Aska, a small Alsatian, who's really noisy and is still learning how to run. So she takes three steps and falls over. Oh, and, um, no. <laughs> yeah, she's really, she's really cute. Um, so yeah, this is where I am. Yeah, cute but noisy. Cute but noisy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that a part of London that you particularly love in your? It's the only part of London that I've lived, and it's the most diverse part of London culturally, and I think I'd say the most welcoming. Um, so yeah, of all of London, this is where I most feel at home. And is that a place as well that you've performed? Um, yes, in quite a few places. But there's an arts venue around the corner called the Albany, and I was an artist residence there for about a year. So I have a long history of just arts building or community building with that organisation. Now, there's been such different experiences during the pandemic throughout the world. How has it been for you in London and how has it changed your community? Um I don't think it's been massively um, dissimilar to most people's experiences scattered across the world in major cities. It went from being glued to the TV screens, watching everything um, sort of come and go and fall apart, watching whole um, slates of work disappear and be cancelled, and to feel really anxious about finance, about income, about and about healthcare systems and its ability to cope with, with just this new constant invisible enemy to become instantly fatigued by it all. So switching on the television and just listening to the radio and binge watching everything on Netflix <laughs> and then watching the world become really politicized by the death of George Floyd and the immigration crisis, which only deepened across the world, really, and the human rights um, violations that happened therein. And then all of that 
deepened by the American politics and the global repercussions and ramifications of everything the current president and administration says or does. And in the midst of it was trying to pin down all of this in something that resembled art, something that was remotely coherent, which seemed impossible, really. So yeah, that's it being for me, watching all these huge momentous tides shift and turn and pitch the world and my world over and over and over again. So you were saying it was impossible to capture, it's been a hard time creatively thinking about those tides and thinking about everything that's happening. Yeah, it's been incredibly difficult in this period. Um, I think I've only created one piece of art, maybe three in total. One of them was terrible and we shall never speak and shall never (laughs) see the light of day. The second was a poem in response to the coronavirus called Fuck Batman. And um, it's the last poem in my next book coming out in October called The Actual. And then the third thing was an extension of that poem into a very short five-minute binaural um, audio play also called Fuck Batman. So that's all I've been able to really create. Everything else has been reading, trying to postpone work, to resurrect work, see how to interpret it for this new world we're living in, or um, and think about the repercussions of that, and then looking after my family as best as I can, and trying to figure out how I can use my position to bring income into the pockets of other poets and artists that I routinely work with. With your work, you've created such a sense of community and you've found different ways to reach out to poets and artists. Have you been able to reach out to people in different ways in these communities? Um, I've done my best to, and we've found some ways to digitise outputs and our sense of community or the spaces in which we used to commune and how we used to do so. So in that way, to a certain extent, yes, but... In some ways, really not at all. I'm quite a tactile human being. I have a poem in my book called Fuck Weak Hugs because I'm a giver of hugs and I'm a giver of really good hugs. And not being able to organize events and have audiences and friends come and gather and commune with me has really affected me in ways I'm really just coming to realize. Um, So to a certain extent, yes, we've been able to build and digitize our communities, but nothing will come close to being able to be in the same space together to, you know, look at our body language, how we respond to music, how the breath of a space moves through us. All of those things have to be experienced in person in order to really be with one another. And also, if we look at how digital communications has affected even just the quality of arguments, the quality of engagement, the quality of discourse over the last five years globally, it's just become incredibly binary and explosive. Twitter used to be a fun place to hang out. Now we go there to see Donald Trump berate people in capital letters or to see um, members of our entertainment community be cancelled for mistakes or things they said five years ago. You know, all of those those things keep happening again. And if we're in a room with someone and they apologize, it's difficult just to dismiss the apology if you see it in their eyes. You know, if you see the slope of their shoulders, the intention, the meaning behind it, all of those things um, is what I fear um, will happen the more we are um, divorced from communing in the same space, you know? It's really interesting because what you were saying about Twitter, it's so oppressive and insular, whereas theatre, which is in often a small confined space, 
has an openness, an openness to possibility, to ideas, to the imagination. You can't compare, can you, the experience of being in that space and, as you say, all of the gestures and all of the kind of emotion of the voice and being in that proximity physically is such an important thing, I think, for the imagination, for that experience of theatre and poetry and music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the lack of it is glaring so much in our capacity to empathise and sympathise with complete strangers. It's easy for a headline to dominate and colonise where emotion would be otherwise. You know, we see someone suffering and naturally just the picture itself would speak to our souls, to our spirits. Now there's a headline which labels them illegal immigrants or labels them an invasion and that word subtly destroys or digests that um, human potential for empathy. So, but the theater is one of those spaces. You'd sit in a hall full of complete strangers and you'd give yourself to the storytelling, to the actors on stage, trying to emote, to communicate really problematic characters in some plays who would be canceled on places like Twitter for their politics. But on stage, you see them move through the space. You see them make difficult horrendous decisions, but understand the human motivations towards making those decisions. And you can't dismiss them. You have to understand and sympathize and lean in to those things. You can't swipe by and dismiss them from the stage. You're stuck there. And that's one of the things that theater does. It forces you to engage and you go there willing to engage. And the completion of the play is the completion of your intention to engage. It's immersive for the human spirit. It speaks to all parts of us. How do you think it's going to change? How do you think theatre and the way we attend performances is going to change long term? Um, Hopefully, I think the next two years, it won't be the same. And there's a part of me, the part of me that's the old man's part of my soul that doesn't want to innovate, just thinks it's okay just to chill for a bit, let the pandemic work its way through the world. And when it dies, we can go back to theatre. Because what we will have to do now is either socially distance things, which means that theatres would be operating at 15% capacity in some cases, and then we'd be so far from each other, we won't feel like we are in a room full of people, you understand? And in which case it begins to undo the magic of theatre itself. So I really don't know how it's going to change. I can just play out scenarios in my head where tickets become incredibly expensive to fund the productions, to pay for the actors. They become smaller casts, maybe, of two or three um, because of that, because that's more financially viable than a cast of 15 or 30. What else could happen? Um, Do you think there'll be more productions outside? Um They are beginning to um, in some spaces. In some countries, the weather is kinder to that. Here in the UK, we're about to go into our autumn where it rains and it snows and it's just not great for (laughs) theatre. But in places like um, Australia, places like parts of America, like California, parts of Canada, parts of the world, um, outdoor theatre might gain a resurgence. And there are also like street performers who have been doing this forever, who perform come rain or snow, or maybe this is their time to claim their space they're usually um, not considered part of theatre because they don't happen in traditional theatre places. They're just out there. They come up with a bag of tricks, you know, perform and pass around a hat to collect money. But I think um, if there isn't any theatre, there's a marketing trick for them. They have to just draw the audiences who are no longer able to gather in the auditorium. 
getting back to your work, a lot of it so beautifully weaves in your background and history. And for the people who don't necessarily know about that, who are listening today, could we go back to the beginning, to the early years of your life in Nigeria? Do you have vivid memories of that? Um, yes and no. Because of what we know, how the brain functions, when you remember something, you're remembering the last time you remember it. And then years by years, generation by generation, you've just papered over the cracks so often that it's a whole new floor, it's a whole new ceiling, and it's vastly different to what was there initially. So I remember what I think I remember, but I think it's rose-tinted and it's idyllic, whereas in reality, it's probably more difficult. But yes, I think I remember um, my childhood and what it was like growing up in a country in which 99% of the population were Black and were African and kind of looked like you. I remember the freedom of that, the opportunity to become invisible, to not always stand out in spaces. I remember... There's this childhood mischief, this little inventor that I was of stories, of art, of music, um, of performances, and um, how prone I was to trouble and how much of a scatterbrained sort of idiot that I was in my schools and also in my home amongst my sisters. Did you have any other great storytellers in your family or particular people who were informative for you? Um, I think storytelling particularly was was probably my father. I remember seeing him um, entertain whole groups of people just by telling stories in our house of things that of his day, things that happened the week before, the month before, the year before, and have whole fits of men tied to his every word, roaring in laughter, falling apart, you know, the sprawling living room with beer and meat in their hands, you know, eating and laughing at the same time. And I was too young <laughs> to understand what was happening. But I perceived there was some sort of magic, something earthbound that emanated from my father's presence. And I think I wanted to be able to do that. Yeah. Did you speak any other languages growing up? Um, unfortunately not. And I regret it to this day. My parents were both bilingual, but in the house, they just settled for English. So I grew up only speaking that. In school, I tried to learn a little bit of French, a little bit of Italian here and there, but um, I was never quite stuck and I was thrown out of my Italian class for something I didn't do. And all my successive French teachers have been by ways annoying to me, which made it difficult to focus in their classrooms. So no, I only speak English. And it's really, it's really problematic in a country like Nigeria, where there are over 500 languages and dialects. And to only speak what was forced on us by British colonization is something that still irks me personally to this day. And when I consider learning another language, I think learning Spanish might be far more beneficial than learning any indigenous Nigerian language because I live here now and Spanish is the second most spoken language in the world. What about the oral and storytelling tradition in Nigeria? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I never really saw it play out in front of me. It was just something that I read, which I attached to hearing my father tell stories to his friends in the living room. But Alongside the development of the written word, which happened years and years before its popularity, it's assumed that you know, it kind of spread through West Africa. There was an oral storytelling tradition where um, um, historians would travel from village to village and entertain whole towns full of people just by telling them stories. Sometimes it was stories of things that had happened in those villages. Sometimes it was news of the outer 
of the outer world, of the bigger, broader politics of the day. And they were all made to entertain, to captivate, to hold, but also to educate. And um, this happened right across West Africa. Um, it touched other countries like um, Senegal, um, Ethiopia, Mali. There were storytellers also traveling through there. But it was a huge feature of West African culture and Nigerian culture as well. That makes me start thinking about your absolutely phenomenal play, The Barbershop Chronicles, which has just, as I said in the introduction, recently been streamed as part of the National Theatre at Home series. And I was lucky enough to see that recently because, of course, I couldn't have seen it in the UK. I love the fact that you had these different barbershops in different countries across Africa and even the way you were describing your father with meat in his hand and conversation and that charisma, it felt like that was coming from different characters within that play. Could you tell us a little bit about the play and where it came from and the research that went into it and how it came to be on stage? Yeah. Years and years ago, um, a friend of mine whose world has exploded because of the pandemic, and this is specifically because she studied um, epidemiology in the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine here in London. At the time, she was still a budding student around 2009. And she told me about this project to teach barbers about counseling, about how to spot potential issues in their clients and offer advice right there and then on the grounds of the barbershop. And my first question was, isn't the NHS, the National Health Service here in the UK, can't they do this job? And when I began to research, I realized they couldn't. They were woefully underserving um, people of Black or Caribbean heritages here in the UK. And Black people were 17 times more likely to be committed to um, a mental institution than their white counterparts. So lots of Black people just refused to go there. They had mental health issues. Therefore, the barbershop and having a barber who could spot their clients speaking intimately about the feelings could really serve the community. And because I was such a workaholic, I wanted to create a project which would mean I could be situated in the barbershop, listening out and somehow transcribing or turning these these conversations into poetry. But I failed drastically to get any organization to pay me to write rhymes about cuts. But the idea stayed in my head. <laughs> and years and years, I pitched it later to the National Theatre after two of my plays um, had done really well there previously. And they liked the idea, gave me a seed commission just to work on and research the material. And I spent about a month in barbershops here in South London specifically. And after returning and sharing the material, which the National Theatre loved, I commissioned, I convinced them that I could do this right across the African continent. They should give me a little bit of money and I'll just go traveling for six weeks, a week in each country on my own. So I reached out to the British Council here in the UK, who introduced me to their counterparts and colleagues on the continent. And I traveled to South Africa, Zimbabwe, Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, and Ghana, and recorded about 60 to 70 hours worth of interviews, which I boiled down to an hour and 45 of stories, which is what makes the play. It's extraordinary. Did you see a concrete difference between the kind of stories that were told? I mean, I found that there was a, a strong universality listening to them, but did you find that incredibly distinct difference between the countries or not? Yeah, very, very distinct, very, very different, but also 
lots of universal themes. One, for instance, the pace of life in East Africa is viscerally different to the pace of life in West Africa. To the point when I hit Nigeria, just to get out of the airport, I was sweating. It was that chaotic. Whereas when I was trying to get into Uganda and Kenya, it was like walking through um, a deserted shopping mall. There was not much going on. It was just so calm and so collected. So the countries feel different. The pace of life is different. The cuisine is different. But there are some similarities in sort of like the politics between the different um, tribal nations and ethnic groups in their relationship with the West, with the UK, which are colonized most of them, with China, which is heavily investing in all of those countries, and similarities in the kind of the tastes and the humors of the men that I met, but also lots of similarities in their concerns and their fears. That was the one rule that I set myself. If the same conversation comes up three times in three countries, then it has to make it to the play. And that's how I was able to whittle down to what we have and why it presents this Pan-African universality through the play. Did you have a role in the actual production in your um, I sat through all the rehearsals. I was involved in the casting, in the selection of music. Oh, the music is fantastic. The music is fantastic, yeah. In the rehearsal room, we were sort of, it became, even putting on the play was also like workshopping the script all over again. We adapted things specifically to some of um, the actors who would tell us things about their barbers or conversations they had with their fathers and their uncles. So I was hugely involved in getting the play up on its feet, yeah. Actually, that brings me also to the question about how you rework what you do, because one thing I love about your writing, all of it, the poetry and the plays and the different things that you do, is your attention to each and every word and the way that you play with language and make it come alive. And thinking about it, I imagine that takes a lot of work. And I was wondering about how you write and redraft to get it into such fine, sharp shape. And I was also wondering about if reading out loud, because you have been such a performance poet over the years and also in the actual plays that are being performed, does that change it? Does that shift the script or the the poem for you when you're hearing it out loud as well? So, yeah, so that's a question about (laughs) how do you redraft basically? Um, I guess like most writers, I write and rewrite and rewrite and I definitely read work out to myself to make sure there's a musicality that there's another sort of alchemy the running through the language and how the words are paired so that a deeper meaning might be sieved through the reading, through the listening as well. For me, the language has to be doing something else besides just telling the story. Um, I think that's partially to blame on listening to a lot of hip-hop when I was a kid and understanding what the rapper's voice was doing to what they were saying, not just how they were saying it, but in intention, in delivery, in pacing, in how that sits with music, on music, before music. And just realizing there was another cloud of thoughts that hovered over the narratives that they were saying and wanted to sort of bring that to the work that I produce, the stories that I kind of tell. And um, that definitely, there were maybe 17 drafts of Barbershop Chronicles, something like something crazy like that. And the initial, the first draft of the play was four hours long. So we reduced it to an hour and 45, which meant that I needed to cut a lot of things and condense and fine tune and reduce. So a lot of that is why the text is just so rich. It had to be, I didn't want to lose everything else. I, I just wanted to keep it there. 
And similarly with the half of rainfall, there were about 10 drafts of that play and it took maybe nine years to write. And I call it a play, even though it's also a book, it kind of sits well between both worlds. And I wrote it as an epic story, which would be performed by actors. So a lot of musicality, a lot of subtle rhymes and rhythms permeates through that story because I expected another second audience to listen to the story, not just to read it. And that's what I found really um, constricting in the use of the form when I first started it. It's written in hexametrical terza rima, which is an extension of the form in which Dante wrote The Inferno. I included two extra feet to make the line longer. And by making the line longer, it meant that I could create more internal rhyme schemes, more like sonic wordplay in each line. Um, at the same time, hit um, the rhyme scheme, which has this A, B, B, A, A, B, A, C, B, C structure. So the first and the third lines of the preceding verse rhymes with the second of the subsequent verse the whole way through. That kind of makes sense. Um, it does. And it has such incredible rhythm to it. And musicality, as you mentioned, it's such a powerful piece of writing. And again, I found the language just incredibly vivid. And I really love the Greek and the Yoruba gods. And and the idea of a woman taking back her power on Zeus is just such a great, great story, let alone the basketball and and um, the demigod. And I just think the way you've woven the narrative together is just absolutely brilliant. It's also really interesting after the kind of intense masculinity because it's all men in the Barbershop Chronicles. I really love that this is kind of the half-god of rainfall is also about a woman's revenge. Yeah, definitely. It was something I started working on the half-god of rainfall before the Barbershop Chronicles came out. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's been playing on my mind since 2009. And the Barbershop Chronicles came out in 2017. And the half-god of rainfall finally hit the stage in 2019, last year. So I'd been working on it all of that time. It just happened that way, really. Another play I had at the National Theatre was Three Sisters, which is entirely about the female um, presence during the Nigerian Civil War. So um, I think trying to show the complexities of all of those characters was important to me. And all of those stories, with a lot of my work, is all about immigration and migration and people who have to leave their homes for any reason and find themselves stranded in an impossible world and have to make the best of impossible situations. Yeah, The Half God of Rainfall is definitely about that. Demi, who is, I think, what who... Or readers think is the protagonist has to leave Nigeria with his mother and finds himself in America trying to just find a space to be human and to play the sport he loves until the powers that be rise against him. And in Three Sisters, it's about three women who are forced to stay in a provincial town during the Nigerian Civil War and the rest of their tribe from across Nigeria, uprooted from all their homes, um, migrate down. And this creates um, a numerous number of chaoses for the sisters and the brother in the family. And um, Barbershop Chronicles is about all of those men, all of those immigrants stranded in a barbershop who are forced to leave their countries for whatever reason and are trying to find a safe space. So all of those things riff on the same, the same ideas of identity, displacement and destiny. And also An Evening with an Immigrant, which came to Australia a few years back, in that you told your own story. Did you find that that was an incredibly effective way to touch on those bigger global issues? Because from my perspective, it, it does, it feels so much kind of, there's also a strength in that, I think, in the intimacy of your story connecting to those bigger themes. 
That wasn't my intention at the time. When I first came up with the idea for a show, it was because I'd written another show, which was terrible. But the Soho <laughs> Theater um, really liked my work and gave me space to experiment. And I called the show An Evening with an Immigrant because I didn't want to call it An Evening Within Our Elements because I didn't think anyone would come to see a show of that title. And all I wanted to do was talk about my immigration experience and just read some poems that I'd written along the way to shed light on particular situations. And that first show was a complete shambles. I think I only got applause at the end because most of the audience members were friends of mine. But it was a theater critic (laughs) who wrote a really glowing review of this scratchy show. And then we set a day, a year in the future to finalize and clean the show and perform it. And the week before that was when the European referendum happened in London. So suddenly, themes that I'd explored the year before were thrust into every conceivable limelight in the country. And the play became this huge political statement, which it wasn't in its conception. And ever since then, it's just grown and grown to become this really great way of discussing the global migration issues and the successive right-wing governments and what they've done to make the United Kingdom and parts of the world hostile for immigrants. I remember when I performed it in Perth, and I tried to localize the show as I do wherever I go by including some of Australia's immigration policy. When I performed it in Perth, I think 10% of my audience walked out because I wasn't shielding from the politics. I just told them how it was how I felt it and how it fell in step with the UK's hostile immigration policies. In terms of writing about your own life, we were just talking earlier on about the fact in the pandemic, it's really hard to actually to write about it creatively. It's a difficult period for a lot of people. And you were saying for you, do you think that hindsight is always really necessary to give you that light, to shed that light on your life and experience and what's going on in order to write more clearly about it? Has it worked like that for you in the past or not always? Um, Most of the time, yes, you do need hindsight to write clearly about anything. You need to be divorced from its reality, from the ways in which its power nudges or colonizes our emotions and then blinds us from the empirical objective truth. So I think distance is important. At the time I was writing An Evening with an Immigrant or putting the show together, rather, I was somewhat distanced from the upheavals of my immigration history. But um, all that happened is that it just got worse around me. So the play became more political. So I was distanced from it, but the world was in distance from that issue and has only become more enmeshed and more entangled in the politics of it. So distance is important, but and hindsight is important, but sometimes the world doesn't give you a breathing space. You just need to find um, ways to express yourself regardless. Can we go back a little bit further into the past? When did you actually start writing for the first time and when were you published for the first time? I started writing for the first time in, um, in Dublin in my penultimate year there, or my final year there, actually around 2002. Um, but I never really took it seriously. I was just trying to impress my poetry teacher, who was also my basketball coach. And when I came to London and was still fighting against the Home Office here in the UK, it was illegal for me to work. So all I had was these vague notions on how to create art from words. And that's how I started writing around 2002, 2003. And my first book was published two years later in 2005. And even then, my parents were sort of resistant. 
because they expected me to go to university and get a proper job like most parents, particularly of developing countries and communities, expect their parents to be doctors or lawyers or scientists or bankers and, you know, little things like that. But um, I think my father came to the book launch and saw um, men older than he was queuing for my autograph. And after that was when he began to relax a little bit to give me space. But ever since then, he and my mother have been extremely supportive of my work. The only thing is they think I work way too much and they want me to slow down and yeah. And for you, it was always about poetry? Um, Because it was the cheapest way to be free. It was the cheapest thing to create. I didn't need an instrument. I didn't need to go to school to learn it necessarily. I just needed an aesthetic, something to chase after, an editing principle, a way of reduction and reducing and fine-tuning and beautifying the stories. It was always poetry. It made the most financial and economic and um, wholesome sense at the time. And ever since then, do I write bigger things and I'm writing feature films and writing television series, all I really want to do is write poetry, is write rhymes. How did you end up getting published? What was the first book that you published and was it a difficult experience or an easy one? It was relatively easy. A friend of mine, well, at the time he was just this older writer that I really respected and who subsequently become friends, had just bought a publishing company called Flip Die. And he was the first poet to give me a performance slot at a live event he curated called Aroma Poetry. So after seeing me run around for two years trying to find my voice, he asked me if I'd ever consider publishing a book. And I said, no, I'm not even a poet yet. I'm just doing all of this stuff. (laughs) Then he said, okay, well, if you have a few ideas, let me know. And I'd written this long poem called um, The Thirteenth Fairy Negro Tales. When I read it to him, he said, this is cool. I wonder if you, could you write actually 13 fairy Negro tales? And I said, I'm not sure, but I'll give it a go. And I wrote 12 other poems that fell in that light. And that first poem referenced all the other 12 poems. So it was sort of like a conceptual book. And that was my very first pamphlet. And that really set the tone for how I come to writing um, books of poetry For me, it's not just a collection of poems. All the poems have to be in conversation with each other. Usually the first or the last poem would dictate the entire course and trajectory of the whole book, or there'd be ways that it cross-reference each other. I don't just like write poems willy-nilly. There's always a family and attempt to create a community through a set of poems. And um, But that was my first book, The 13 Fairy Negro Tales. And I think I was um, 20 years old or so. Yeah, 20 years old, I think. Did you always come quite naturally to the stage and to performing or was it a bit shaky at first, <laughs> like like it is for most of us when we get on stages? No, it was very shaky from the beginning. Um, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't hold the microphone steady. I'd fumble up my words. I had very little to no stage presence. And then it kind of grew and grew till I was doing way too much on stage. I was windmilling through poems. My hands were everywhere. And then <laughs> when I began to work in theater, my first director just taught me about composure and stillness and how to use that to really transform a story. And it's got to the point where I'm so comfortable. I don't even rehearse poems or choose what poems to read anymore. I just rock on stage and create a safe space. (laughs) Oh, it sounds great. What about the rap parties in you? Do you ever help younger poets who are starting out with that kind of initial tentative, those tentative steps at the beginning? I think the rap party is a really great safe space to come 
for first-time poets because on stage, all they read is one poem and then they sit down and the DJ plays two of their favorite hip-hop songs, which is associated <laughs> with that poem. So it feels like they're able to set the tone before or after their poem and they're only on stage for two or three minutes and then they go they go away. So um, And then because it feels like a party atmosphere, they can really invite their friends and their families. And even if their poem is whack, the song choices tends to be okay. So it all balances <laughs> out perfectly. Oh, I'd love to go. It sounds so great. Not to perform, to watch. <laughs> to watch. I mean, I once booked a poet who read a haiku and she actually crowdsourced the haiku from Twitter and that was her contribution <laughs> to the night. So if you do want to take part in one, let me know. <laughs> I'll resist the haiku from Twitter. But <laughs> but um, what about your midnight runs, Inua? For people who don't know about them, can you give us a bit of a lowdown? And I know that you've done them all around the world. I guess it's kind of a difficult time for that right now, uh, I imagine. I think it's actually the perfect time for Midnight Runs right now because we can't gather inside, but we can gather outside, you know. So it's a perfect time for Midnight Run, but it's difficult because of money. They're really expensive to put on because of just how much manpower and brain power it requires. And the Midnight Run started, like a lot of my practices, out of abject poverty. Um, I couldn't afford <laughs> to get um, I couldn't afford to get a bus after seeing an event here in London somewhere. And I was out with my best friend. So we began to walk the bus route. And after a while, I'm frustrated at the lack of appearance of any bus along the bus route. We just deviated and carried on walking through the city for five or six hours. And we had so much fun. But I began to consider if complete strangers wouldn't get a kick out of doing the same thing. And I just plagued those who are subscribed to my newsletter saying, you've seen me read poems for like 15 minutes. Would you like to spend a little bit longer, about six hours with me? And they said, yes. And I began by designing poetry exercises, writing exercises that were site specific to places on this route that I'd planned through the city. And sometimes it involved a meal here. We'd go to this restaurant and I'd work out a deal with the manager. That if I could bring 20 or 30 people, they could give us like a 10% discount. But along the way, we'd be writing poetry and sharing poetry. So it became a way of creating a community for one night only of people who had nothing to lose because they were with people they had nothing to gain from and no fear of really of bumping into in life again. So they could come and create whole new personas if they wanted. We have nowhere of finding out that they were lying about who they were. So it was a safe space for adults to play again, to rediscover their youth, to be inventive, to create and destroy, you know, and just to explore parts of the city they had only driven through on buses or on cars, to travel by foot, to be with the city, to breathe with the city, to be with each other and to create art. And um, it started in 2005 and this year makes it the 15th anniversary, I think. And um, we've done a whole bunch of midnight runs across the world, two in Australia. They must be hard to organize, I imagine. Um, yeah, they are. This is what makes them expensive. They're very hard to organize. We need to spend maybe two to three months of planning, of for walking through a city, finding local artists to design those artistic interventions and interventions throughout the course of the night, and then selling tickets and safeguarding everything. And yeah, a lot of brain power and a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. You spoke about a TV series. Can you tell us about the different projects that you're working on at the moment? 
even though we were also talking about the difficulty of working on projects at the moment. The things that I'm working on, which won't be seen for another five to six years, and any one time I may be tweaking between 20 projects. I have this project management software that I use in front of me. I'm just going to count how many things. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29. Oh my goodness. 30, 30. Okay. So between, yeah, on about 32 projects that I'm currently pushing. Some of them are events that I organize. Some of them are film scripts that I'm writing, residencies at universities, fellowships here and there, TV series. What's the TV series? Um, I wrote a play called Black T-Shirt Collection, which was um, about two um, foster brothers um, from northern Nigeria who are forced again to leave Nigeria for sectarian violence reasons. And um, they just traveled around the world trying to sell black T-shirts. And um, it was a play which I performed. I think I last performed it in Australia, actually, in Melbourne. At Sydney Writers Festival. Oh, okay, in Melbourne as well. Because we loved it. Sydney loved it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I did perform it there as well. But I performed it at, yeah, in the Melbourne Art Centre. And, um, yeah, so I went on the Channel 4, which is a TV channel here in the UK, Screenwriters Course, and wrote the first episode and was snapped up by NBC and working title. And I'm currently working on the second episode. Do you love that form of writing? How do you find it in comparison? Um, I really do love it, actually, it's because it combines all my disciplines. Um, I spent the first 18 years of my life wanting to be a visual artist, so I'm able to to write visually and just have things move on screen and use that to communicate and to create drama and suspense. But also I'm able to write dialogue and write with the use of a sort of narrative voice, write poetry into it. And because it's TV, I'm only really limited by imagination. So I'm really enjoying the form. The only downside is there are all of these executives. TV is half of the TV industry is full of executives who just have different opinions you can't entirely disregard. So it's, whereas with poetry, it's just you. And with theater, it might just be you, the dramaturg and the director. So three people. In TV, it's like 15, you know? So that's the only downside. But um, other than that, I'm really enjoying the form. It's really freeing, yeah. Tell me about the radio documentary. I was having a look at your website and it sounded fascinating. Um, so the University of Untuka, Nigeria, was one of the first universities ever created in that country. And it produced some of the greatest writers Nigeria has ever produced, including people like Chimamanga, Ngozi Adichie, I think Wale Shoinka worked there as well, and Chinwa Achebe, who wrote Things Full Apart, which was the first post-colonial novel in West Africa and who is deemed to be the father of African literature. So, and there's something about the land, about the register, it still holds the spirituality, the mysticism, the idea of Unsuka and its reputation, which bleeds out and also acts as a sort of black hole, a sort of anchor, um, a magnet that draws people back in. So um, what we explored was the history of Unsuka, the repercussions of it, how it survived the civil war in Nigeria, what impact the civil war had on its continuing legacy, and why it still draws um, so many fantastic writers and creates a space for them to explore the identities, but also the narrative voices. 
When can we hear that? Um, it's a radio documentary, and I think it's broadcast by the BBC. But I think if you have access to anything like BBC iPlayer, you can hear it, or perhaps even the BBC um, World News or the BBC Global Channels. Yeah, but I'm um, here in the UK. It's broadcast on Radio Four. And what is the project with Le Petit Prince, the Little Prince? What are you doing with that? Oh, I've sort of done it already. I mean, we're going to have to find ways to bring it back into fruition and maybe reconfigure the text a little bit. But it was a, it was an adaptation of Le Petit Prince, the, this um, incredible, whimsical, philosophical book about a pilot who crash lands in a desert and meets a little prince who teaches him a lot about himself, about the nature of friendship, humanity, and our place in the world and our convictions in that world. And I re rewrote it and adapted it and set it in an Afrofuturist world, which the little prince is, is facing ecological disaster and has to leave his planet in order to figure out how to fix it and travels across the universe looking for help from climate change scientists or engineers and instead, he just meets humanoids who typify really problematic aspects of our consciousness. And he goes back home finally and figures out how to help his family. And I wrote it because I was trying to get young people to really think about climate change and what powers they have to change the world and not to feel daunted by the scale at which it is currently wrecking our planet. But despite that, to try and do the little things that they can. That's my version. Is it a play or is it a verse novel or a poetry? It's a play, but um, it's written partially in verse and partially with the African oral tradition in mind. So it's narrated by a cast of five women and they just tell the story of the little prince, really. And the little prince speaks entirely in verse throughout the whole play, whereas everyone else speaks in prose and dialogue with subtle rhyme schemes. Oh, I really hope I'm going to be able to read it as well as a book. Oh, you definitely can. Oberon published the text so you can purchase it. Definitely. It's online. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. What brings you joy today, Inuel? Oh, that's a difficult question. Um, the last this week has been really heavy so far. Just um, I've just been questioning a lot about just decisions and ways that had operated um, in my life. I'm, I'm trying to do better and to point out and outline the mistakes I made and the ways that I had been to deviate from them. So at the moment, um, what brings me joy? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not in a joyful mood right now. I think I'm just really meditating and a little melancholic. So not just not just yet. I think by the end of the week, hopefully... Um, I'm going away and I have um, next week is a holiday week for me, the first of the year. And I'm going to try not to work. I'm going to reconnect with my driving instructor and go for a few more lessons. I think being on the highway might give me a little bit of joy. It sounds like there's so many projects that you have on and also having time to breathe and some space and some solitude, I can imagine is a good thing, even though hugs are also a good thing and people yeah 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 i think that the pandemic has hugely impacted me i think i've lost something like 70 percent of my income this year with projects just indefinitely postponed so and because i was so invested in trying to make other people feel better and just not to worry about it i haven't really considered the real impact of that and maybe some of that is just catching up with me now 
it's really, I don't know exactly what the UK, the kind of support that they have, but there seems to me such a lack, such an incredible lack around the world from different governments in terms of their support for the arts and artists. I really hope that changes. I really hope there's some kind of shift there, that's for sure. Yeah, I hope so too. In your, is there anything that we wouldn't know about you that you're particularly interested in or passionate about? It's a bit of an abstract question. Yeah. Currently, I'm trying to touch my toes. <laughs> I've never really been able to do so. I've been doing um, flexibility, body flexibility stretches, been doing a little bit of yoga. I just want to be able to just fold over at my waist and touch my toes with my legs completely straight. So this is my own sort of like small challenge. By the end of the year, I want to be able to do that with no pain behind my knees. Um, so yeah, can't touch my toes. I really like to be able to do that. That's maybe something you guys <laughs> didn't know about me. Would you be able to read us a poem or recite us a poem? Or I'd love to hear if you had, you know, if there was something that you'd like to read, whether it be from the half god of rainfall, anything at all. I'd love to hear something. Yeah, um, I have a new book coming out on the fifth of October called "The Actual." The Actual, and um, I could read the very first poem. It's called "Fuck Tupac." which is really an elegy for Tupac. So I'll read it. This is the first poem, and um, this is how the actual begins. It's very political. It might get me in some trouble here in the UK because I write about everyone from Tommy Robinson to um, Donald Trump to Boris Johnson. So it's a hugely political book, and it really discusses some of what is happening in America right now and also in the UK, which would just sweep under the carpet. And by that, I'm thinking about police brutality and the young Black men and women who die at the hands of police and in police custody. Fuck Tupac really sort of begins, sets the tone, and this is it. Fuck Tupac for dying early, for the fields of lavender and hawthorn in which I sat, overlooking Dublin city, though as dusk wrapped the sky, it could have been any creaking constellation of traffic and tower blocks from Compton to Clondalkin, blinking staccato madness into the unspooling night. Fuck you for forcing the criminal animal gnashing its teeth in piss-streaked alleys, colorless priests cruising in rented hatchbacks, Protestants and Catholics like the Bloods and Crips, brothers split along color lines, fueled by racist police who came to break our skin. Fuck you for ordering them to the rank and file of rhyme, for making sense of the Celtic anarchy in those urban psalms of your slim scripture, in your rich voice explaining this is how it's always been. Darkness, light, thin paths between with you leading, you reluctant Messiah, as all true Messiahs must be leading to a fellowship of souls, hunkered in headphones, suspended between word and hard matter, fans, disciples, self-sanctified street saints, thrown stones of strange fruit, sour as we are, scattered across the tar-marked planet, haloed in snapbacks, hooded, hidden, hollering hard, hallelujahing, head bowed, nodded in pious agreement, how we would have followed you, homie, to hell and back, how you had me whole. Thank you, Inua. Thank you so much for sharing your 
work and your art and speaking with us today. It's been such a pleasure. For everyone listening, I really recommend that you go immediately to Inua's site, which is inuaellums.com, to see the list of phenomenal books that he has published and order them all. He really is, as you've just heard, an extraordinary writer. Thank you, Inua. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 